When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kid doesn't dream about Disneyland? I mean, even if you were never a Disney kid growing up, it's hard to deny the cultural impact Disneyland has made on society. Maybe you never dreamt about Disneyland per se, but the idea of Disneyland more than likely still affected you. I mean, how could it not? It's this magical place with incredible rides and epic fireworks shows behind towering fantasy castles, where a kid could actually meet and interact with their favorite cartoon and movie characters. But this idea, the promise of returning people to a state of childlike wonder is not unique to Disneyland. It's at the core of all amusement parks and it's embedded in our cultural consciousness. When you really think about it, amusement parks have quite literally become the quintessential childhood fantasy. Some of the more renowned parks can themselves be a once in a lifetime bucket list excursion. And that's the whole appeal of amusement parks. They've become Americana, part of our cultural identity. It's just as a 2021 Vox article on amusement parks says, quote, amusement parks embody the American story itself. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Sure, we've discussed how amusement parks reflect imagination, ingenuity, innocence, possibility, and more. But just think about how precisely those characteristics feed America's ego. It's like they represent the American dream. As Margaret King, director of the Center for Cultural Studies and Analysis suggests, Theme parks play off nostalgia, sure, but it's an anachronistic nostalgia. And that's just a way of saying that they portray idealized versions of things, not accurate versions of things. These parks represent places that never really existed. But just like every fantasy has a dark side, so too does the amusement park industry. The truth is the whole industry has had a truly problematic and dangerous past rife with racism, sexism, and neglect of safety. That cuts deep, considering amusement parks are so special to us, culturally and personally. But what hurts even more than that, for a little more than a century, amusement parks have caused thousands of severe injuries and hundreds of deaths. It's really disturbing stuff to be honest, but is it all that surprising? I mean, in a way, amusement park, warts and all, truly do seem to embody the problematic American story itself. By now you might be thinking, okay, sure, amusement parks in their early years may have been problematic and even deadly, but that was like a hundred years ago. They're so much safer and more PC now. You'll more than likely get hit by lightning than injured at an amusement park. And I'm sorry, not sorry to ruin your childhood with the revelation that no, actually amusement parks have not completely turned the other cheek, nor are they as safe as you might expect in the 21st century, especially considering some tragic and downright gruesome recent events, like this one just over a year ago. 400 foot descent at 75 miles an hour. A newly released accident report says Samson came out of the seat as the ride began to break, adding the harness was still in a down and locked position when the ride- The truth is, all of those things I mentioned before, the racism, the cruelty, the loss of life, these things have shaped how amusement parks operate and their undercurrents can be felt even today. And just in case you think I'm over-sensationalizing this just a little bit, the theme park industry has, for the last 40 years or so, 
actively fought against any sort of federal regulation or oversight, which has had the dual effect of enabling them to do whatever they want, make a buck, and allowing them to have the sole control over safety statistics. And that's right. That narrative we've heard time and time again that amusement parks are overwhelmingly safe? Well, that comes from the theme park industry itself, and it's based on their own fuzzy math. While I've never liked math, today we're gonna take a look at those numbers and much more on The Corporate Casket. Park death of a 14-year-old boy in Orlando. 400-foot descent at 75 miles an hour. A newly released accident report says Samson came out of the sea as the ride that slide began to break. Now adding as we learn new details about the tragedy. And investigators three girls plummeting from a Ferris wheel, all raising new questions about ride safety and regulations. And if you want to check out bonus episodes, episodes without ads, extended episodes, I don't know, live chats and so much more, including, of course, episodes that are going to be too spicy for YouTube and Spotify, make sure to check out patreon.com slash Illuminati. It's the one-stop shop to get all the extra content that you need. Links will be provided in the description, but patreon.com slash Illuminati. There's a lot to discuss when it comes to the amusement park industry. I mean, this industry is founded upon some really gross motivations and is tainted by very dark influences that still exist in modern parks today, despite PR and legal campaigns suggesting otherwise. But the gross stuff springs up from seeds that were planted way, way back. And the only way to fully understand what's going on is to understand the long history of amusement parks themselves. Like it's a really crazy history and we will still only barely outline it here for context, but for our purposes, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version so we can get to the meat of the matter, which is that despite how messed up the history is, things haven't really changed as dramatically as you may have been led to believe. Also, I should mention that we'll be using the terms amusement park and theme park interchangeably to describe permanent amusement parks that always stay in one location, as opposed to those traveling carnivals and fairs and whatnot. So with that clarification out of the way, let's get into it. And we're gonna start with talking about Epcot, the experimental utopian planned community turned theme park run by the Walt Disney Company. It evokes pure futurism. Its iconic giant globe structure, Spaceship Earth, has become the quintessential Florida landmark and an emblem of human potential. All of that instills a sense of potential and possibility, which are aspirational concepts with forward momentum. But the truth is, the concept of amusement parks is actually almost ancient. You see, Modern amusement parks have evolved from their medieval European ancestors, which are theme festivals, which date as far back as the 1300s. These festivals often occurred during religious holidays, no surprise there considering these things go back into time as far as like the Crusades or important harvests as well. Because they were often religious in nature, these festivals were open to many walks of life regardless of social class. Despite the religious undertones, however, these festivals had all of the trappings of modern amusement parks. People would gather in large designated areas to circulate and enjoy exotic food and wares from different cultures. There were games and silly competitions to take part in, like throwing javelins through rings and shooting arrows or throwing darts at targets. These festivals had even rides. A particular favorite was one that could be described as the precursor to the carousel, in which people would sit in baskets that were then spun around a pole. After centuries of medieval style fun and relaxation, these festivals evolved into parks called pleasure gardens, the gardens started to sprout up in major European cities in the 18th century, offering an escape for the newly emerging middle class with their fancy grounds, live music, fireworks, and mesmerizing performers. Remember that back then, people didn't have entertainment on demand and at their fingertips. 
getting entertained was a radical thing, previously reserved for royalty. So just imagine the excitement and controversy these parks would have stirred up. Now fast forward to the 1800s and the pleasure garden craze crossed the ocean to America. And this was a game changer as it introduced the concept of thrill seeking. Because before this time, life was pretty damn tough. Nobody had time for such luxuries, let alone the energy to push their limits when simply surviving was a challenge in of itself. And to some degree, I know a lot of us in the current day probably feel the same. But around this time, America caught the thrill-seeking bug and oh boy, did it take off. Cue the rise of iconic destinations like Coney Island and legendary expositions like the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition. These new parks were unlike anything the world had seen before and were all about jaw-dropping attractions, mind-blowing spectacles, and pushing social boundaries. There was a constant whirlwind of novelty and excitement. Everything now was about shock and awe, and parks had to keep up with the demand for ever-increasing thrills. As such, they had to constantly reinvent themselves, swapping out attractions to keep visitors on their toes and finding ways to constantly up the ante. And this changed amusement parks forever. And it's here where things start to take a darker turn. And I'm telling you, when I say darker, it is absolutely worse than whatever could possibly be in your mind. So remember that Vox article that I quoted earlier at the beginning of the episode that basically said the story of amusement parks is the story of America? Well, if that's the case, then America is a country founded on racism, sexism, cruelty, and senseless death, which if any of that's a surprise to you, then what are you even doing in this corner of the internet? Now, before we dive into all the truly repugnant stuff, let me put a trigger warning right here that if you're not in the headspace to hear about this as it goes a bit more graphic, feel free to leave today's episode now. For those of you staying, Let's continue. To begin this long list of reprehensible acts, early amusement parks were often extremely offensive and highly objectionable. They were demeaning to just about every human demographic you could imagine. A great example of this was Coney Island's Dreamland. One such attraction there, Lilliputia, was an experimental community that was a half-scale replica of 15th century Nuremberg, Germany, and it was named after the fictional tiny town from the Jonathan Swift novel, Gulliver's Travels, though it was better known by a more problematic name that I won't repeat here. More than 300 little people lived in this community and performed for park visitors. And now when I say people lived in this tiny 80 by 175 foot city, I do mean that. The town had its own beach, laws, police, and fire stations and more. And when the parks were closed and no paying customers were around to gawk at all of the people that just looked different than themselves, the residents went about their lives in the city as normal. Honestly, this kind of reminds me of P.T. Barnum's freak shows and how he would treat people with disabilities or medical conditions as nothing more than circus attractions. That's a whole other story. And this is very much unfortunately in the same vein of exploitation. But as if that wasn't bad enough, Luna Park featured an attraction called Igorote Village which was another replica village populated by imported Filipino tribesmen, women, and children. And in this particular village, the residents would exaggerate customs, such as holding a ritual dog feast to celebrate a, quote, successful headhunt. The village members would slaughter a dog in front of the crowd and then cook it in a large pot and eat it. Aside from being racist and ableist at Steeplechase Park, paying customers were forced to walk around a platform upon entry to the park that became known as the Blowhole Theater, which was just an area with air jets built into the flow to just go up women's skirts. To make matters worse, according to a New Yorker article about the topic, the park management actually set up hundreds of seats to allow paying customers to view the spectacle. 
But perhaps the most shocking of all, many older theme parks featured an attraction that was known by a few quite frankly deplorable names, but for this episode, I'm going to refer to it as the African Dodger. And yes, I know how bad that sounds, but that's not nearly as bad as some of the names that it was actually given. In this very common attraction, which is horrific to say, versions of this, by the way, were found as late as the 1960s, I might add, white customers would pay to throw baseballs at black Americans' faces to win prizes. Several people sustained life-changing injuries. One man lost his nose and a few others lost eyeballs and teeth, and also many suffered brain damage, as would be expected when someone is literally throwing baseballs at your fucking head. Many others even died from this abuse. Unsurprisingly, early amusement parks could be uncomfortable at best and at worst, downright deadly. In 1910, Coney Island's Rough Riders roller coaster flung 16 passengers from their seats, killing four. And five years later, the coaster again flung passengers, four riders and the conductor, whose body fell onto an onlooker and sent her to the hospital. The thing is, incidents like this were also fairly common, but maybe that's to be expected from 19th century parks. After all, this occurred during a time when you were seemingly more likely to be killed by medical professionals than if you simply took your chances and let nature take its course. You know what's great about not having to worry about choosing through hundreds of thousands of options? It's also being able to save money at the end of your purchase too. And that's why today's episode is also sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. But did you know that Honey also takes just a couple seconds to get it? That means if you go and add it to your laptop, iPhone, computer right now, you could be done before this ad read is even over. And it is so nice to go through shopping and then at the end of it, the honey button drops down and you find out you've saved five bucks, 10 bucks, 10%, 15%, 20%, or like I've said, which I'm very proud of this, although I didn't do any of the work, it's all honey really, uh, 40% off coupon on pizza, thanks to honey. Again, thank you so much. I'm never gonna let this one die. That is like the best accomplishment honey has ever done for me. But the reality is Honey is the free shopping tool that's gonna scour the internet for promo codes and apply the best ones it finds to your cart. And it's really easy. All you do is shop on one of your favorite sites as you do normally. And when you go to checkout, the Honey button appears and all you have to do is click apply coupons, wait a couple seconds as Honey searches. And then if you find a working coupon, you're just gonna watch those prices drop. And as I mentioned earlier, Honey doesn't just work on your computer. It's gonna work on your iPhone too. You just activate it on Safari on your phone and you can save on the go. And getting Honey seriously takes just a couple seconds and by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casket. Again, that's joinhoney.com casket. So by now you might be thinking, okay, of course amusement parks had all sorts of issues a hundred years ago. The culture was different back then. Technology was different back then. And most importantly, safety protocols and standards were different back then. And believe me, I've heard that point of view many a time. I don't think it's justified in the case of treating people like subhumans because of their race. I don't care what decade you're from. It wasn't okay then, and it isn't okay now. However, when it comes to safety, it's more than just reasonable to argue things are different. It's a fact. We've come a long, long way from flinging people around precariously in rickety wooden baskets with literally no safety implements whatsoever. At least nowadays, theme parks have seatbelts, safety bars, and harnesses in certain cases. The official narrative from the theme park industry naturally corroborates that point of view. The way they tell it, not only are parks no longer as negligent and dangerous as they used to be, but they're overwhelmingly safe. And to support this assertion, they point to fancy committees like the International Association of Parks and Attractions, or the IAAPA. 
and to the industry safety standards like ASTM, Amusement Ride Standards. They also emphasize the fact that amusement parks now spend millions and millions of dollars on safety programs. And they're quick to point out facts like how park safety incidents occur much less frequently than other run-of-the-mill accidents like motor vehicle collisions. Case in point, a 2023 USA Today article about amusement park ride safety found that the odds of being seriously injured at amusement parks are one in 15.5 million rides. And according to Jacob Wall, the president and CEO of the IAAPA, quote, "'Incidences that are extremely severe are very rare in our industry. And the reason those incidents get so much media attraction is precisely, quote, "'because it is so rare.'" But the truth is, a lot of that stuff is just smoke and mirrors to distract from the fact that severe accidents are still happening. In just the past decade or so, even throughout the 2020s thus far, amusement Rapids parks have seen one tragedy after another. At the park for 30 years. Today, tragedy as one of the rafts overturned, throwing two passengers off, trapping two others on a conveyor belt underneath. For example, in Australia in 2016 at Dreamworld Amusement Park, four people were killed instantly when the Thunder River Rapids ride malfunctioned and sent two rafts crashing into each other. Also, who could forget about the high-profile incident that happened in 2016 at Schlitterbahn Water Park in America, where a 10-year-old boy was decapitated when a park ride called Verrucht, which is German for insane, sent people careening down a slide at 70 miles an hour and it went airborne, sending him flying into a metal ring that supported the safety net surrounding the slide and cut his head off. A few years later in 2019, a pendulum-style ride at Kenkaria Amusement Park in India splintered while in full swing, throwing 31 riders careening through the air strapped to their seats. Two people were killed in the shocking tragedy and the other 29 were all seriously injured. But even in just the last three years during the pandemic, amusement park rides have still proven to be dangerous and more so than we might think. In 2022, for example, the roller coaster called El Toro at Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey malfunctioned, causing abrupt bumps and jolts as riders moved along at 70 miles per hour. It features a 176 foot drop and goes up to 70 miles per hour. El Toro officially reopens tomorrow. The incident caused injury to many guests, ranging from bitten tongues to chipped teeth to hospitalizations for neck and back injuries. Those were a few specific high profile incidents, but the general numbers are also disturbing. In 2021, the same year as the one in 15 million statistic I cited earlier, there were 130 serious injuries, including fatalities. Now, while that figure pales in comparison to the 658 people who died in boating accidents or the 42,915 people who died in car accidents that same year, keep in mind that those 130 theme park injuries happened in situations where people have little to no control over what happens on the rides. Other statistics about motor vehicle accidents and whatnot, those occur in situations where people are willingly taking risks and have to jump through hoops in the form of months of training, licensing, adhering to traffic laws, etc., just to participate in the activity. So I just don't think that's truly a fair comparison. Also, 130 serious injuries per year, including fatalities, I think that's still just a hair too many. Keep in mind that those figures are from 2021, while we were in the midst of a mandated pandemic shutdown and restriction. In non-pandemic years, the numbers are worse. In 2019, for example, there were 1,294 theme park-related ride injuries, 6% of which required hospitalization or resulted in death. The theme park industry might say chances are one in 15 million that you'll be injured, but seeing those numbers, I don't feel super assured. In all of the high-profile cases I mentioned before and many others that I didn't mention, investigations have shown that parks neglected to properly inspect rides or outright knew that rides had issues or problems. 
but the parks ignored them anyway, all because they were more focused on the arms race in which parks were aggressively seeking to top each other by offering more thrilling and dangerous rides. So much for those safety standards, right? Let's take a moment to chat about those regulatory bodies. I'll put it bluntly. They've basically got no power and they do little to nothing. Take the aforementioned ASTM, Amusement Park Safety Standards, for example. They were developed by a committee of amusement park experts and stakeholders in 1978 to, quote, assure the safety of amusement rides. But guess what? The standards are completely voluntary. Nobody's enforcing anything. There are no punishments for not adopting the standards. And even if a theme park were to formally adopt the standards, there's nothing to hold them accountable for actually applying them. So the big question here is how do these standards assure safety? I don't really think they do much. But let's also talk about the other one. The IAAPA is similarly superficial and essentially it's just an intimidating sounding PR organization for the amusement park industry. That's right. Their mission is to quote, inspire, grow, and protect the global attractions industry through member connections. That's it, that's what they do. All they do is basically organize and host conventions so that industry insiders can band together to find ways to promote the industry and fill their pocketbooks. And they utilize their connections to protect the industry's public perception. Now, let's take a moment and consider what this actually means. Organizations like these will do and say whatever they need in order to promote and protect their industry, which in of itself is not a wholly terrible thing. I mean, making sure your customers feel safe with your product can be a great incentive for actually making your product safe. Also, just because these organizations lack any sort of governing authority doesn't mean that their standards don't make an impact. After all, ASTM standards have been used as the basis for actual safety legislation on the state and municipal levels, and I think that's a great thing. Despite that though, it's mostly a ruse designed to distract the public while the theme park industry tries to preserve its interests. So what about actual governance, regulation, or legislation? Well, it turns out that in America, amusement parks are not federally regulated. Oh, and not only that, they're not regulated simply because of a jurisdictional dispute oversight. You see, from 1972 to 1981, amusement parks were actually federally regulated by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, also known as the CPSC. But in 1981, to settle a jurisdiction dispute over conflicting circuit court rulings, Congress changed the purview of the CPSP to oversee only mobile amusement parks like traveling carnivals, not fixed amusement parks that are settled permanently in one place like Disneyland or Six Flags. So what you might be thinking, why hasn't new federal regulation been proposed? It seems a bit overdue at this point, right? Well, the truth is that the industry has aggressively lobbied against federal oversight for decades. And I know that's absolutely shocking. So let me go ahead and rephrase that. Our dear friends at the IAAPA, the very same organization that insists injuries from amusement park rides are exceptionally rare, have aggressively lobbied against federal oversight for decades. In 2016, for example, an IAAPA spokesperson claimed that federal oversight of the amusement park industry would cost taxpayers millions and that strong local and state regulation would be far more effective. Now, that's not to say that individual states can't regulate amusement parks, but as you might expect, this means that park regulations, expectations, and inspections are wildly inconsistent from state to state. In an interview with the Insurance Journal, amusement park safety consultant Ken Martin says, quote, there are 50 states in the United States of America and no two inspect rides the same way. That's wrong. We're not close to being in the same book state to state. We're not even on the same page of the hymnal. We certainly aren't singing in key. As things currently are, seven states have no laws governing amusement park safety, 
Many have very light regulations, and New Jersey has by far the strictest. So state and local regulations don't seem to be that effective, despite the IAAPA's insistence that, quote, strong local and state regulation is the most effective government oversight for the industry. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm starting to notice a trend here with the IAAPA. Why is it that their main talking points focus on decentralization? Think about it. The organization repeatedly claims that amusement parks are overwhelmingly safe, but they lobby aggressively against consolidated federal oversight that could potentially gather consistent data about amusement park injuries. As it is now, it's a hodgepodge of information, and most of the statistics come from, drumroll please, the IAAPA itself. The same goes for state regulation of amusement parks, by the way. It's hard to gather accurate data when there's no large-scale consolidated systemic effort. All good sense suggests that federal oversight would be, like, the bare minimum to help us paint a more accurate picture of the problem. According to Dr. Gary Smith, director of the Center for Injury Research and Policy, who conducts his own independent research on the matter, more than 4,000 children per year are injured at amusement parks. But he does acknowledge that his data gathering strategies are limited and therefore says that better numbers are needed to get a sense of the true scope of the problem. He says, quote, This is a public health problem, and we need to treat it like a public health problem. That starts with a national approach to collecting data. So if that's the case, why does the IAAPA fight tooth and nail against national legislation? The answer, as per usual, is simple and disappointing. It's so they can control the narrative. Remember that these parks make a killing, even while they're killing customers who are just seeking to escape or recapture a bit of their childhood. There's no excuse for this, especially considering recent reports that theme parks are charging thousands of dollars for a single day of magic. Even in this day and age, amusement parks are essentially nothing more than culturally embedded scams that will stop at nothing to take your wallet, and in some cases, quite literally, your firstborn. But with all of that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. Hope you learned something new here today, and if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. As always, I really appreciate you spending a couple minutes of your time here with me, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.